We are this morning in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Jesus has made his way down off the mountain into the city of Capernaum, uh, which is on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that also happens to be the city where Jesus called uh, Peter, James, and John, at the very least, of the disciples. Um, Something to note real quick before I go any further. Matthew did not record his gospel chronologically. Roughly speaking, things happened in a particular sequence uh, as he has them recorded, but some things like the the miracles here that happen in chapter 8 where Jesus does certain things, if you look at Luke's gospel, they're in a different sequence because Luke pays a little bit more attention to the timing of when things happen. Matthew tends to group them by topic, instead of by time. Just something for you to keep in mind. Um, Speaking of the miraculous here, uh, just just for us to remember, if if you read the pages of Scripture, you start with Genesis, you make your way to Revelation, you get the idea, because you can probably do that in about a year if you're disciplined, and you make it through the book of Numbers. Um, (laughs) Because that can be a tough book, right? You you might kind of get the impression that miracles happened all the time while the text of Scripture was being written. That's not the case. Because if miracles happened all the time, they would no longer be miracles, they would be commonplace. Um, So the, the purpose of miracles in the life of a Jew was to confirm a prophetic message by a messenger. So in the case of Isaiah, in the case of Ezekiel, in the case of Daniel, things happened as God's stamp of approval on the message that was just spoken or the message that was about to be spoken. So the biggest number of miracles that take place in Scripture happen around the life of Jesus, period. The three-year period of his ministry is the period of the most densely packed happening of miracles in all of Scripture. And that is because, as Jesus was ministering, as he was teaching, God was giving the sign to the people that this is my message, this is indeed my son. So something for us to remember as we come to Uh, Chapter 8, verse 14. Let's all stand this morning. I'm going to read from 14 to 22. Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. That's Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around Him, He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to Him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come to the text of your word, help us to understand uh, the meaning. Help us to understand the application, how these words that were spoken and written to uh, Jews living in first century Palestine apply to Americans living in 21st century uh, United States. Help us to help us to apply what we read this morning to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So, well, Jesus was teaching on the mountain there when he, he, we spent all that time from chapter 5 through chapter 7 in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there, there was a huge crowd that was gathered, but Matthew tells us that specifically Jesus was teaching his disciples. Whether that was those who came particularly to listen to him or those who he had called to be followers, those were the ones that he was teaching. And of course, among the ones that Jesus had called, we had, uh, as I've already mentioned, Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John. All four of them were fishermen. They were all from the city of Capernaum. So they were all well acquainted with the area and the Sea of Galilee. At the very least, of these four men, Peter was married. We don't know if Andrew was. We don't know if James and John were. We know Peter was. We know this because Matthew tells us that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Why would she be in Peter's house? Probably because she's a widow. In the life of Israel, in the, in the life of the Jewish people, when a woman was beyond childbearing years, if she became a widow, and she had children who were able to take care of her, then she would live with those children. If she were of particular means where she could support herself, she would have her own house. So being a fishing community, she probably was not wealthy, and she probably was a widow who lived in Peter's house with him and his wife. Jesus walks into the house, and Matthew, Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. He says, Jesus entered Peter's house, saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and then he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Why do you think that Jesus would have done this? There's a couple possibilities. In part, I would say, based on the character of Jesus that we read in Scripture, he may well have done it just because he was moved with compassion for this woman who was suffering. If you look at the pattern of Jesus' life when he encounters somebody who is suffering, he does not hesitate to relieve that suffering. This was also a member of Peter's family. Now, Jesus, in his divinity, knows the end from the beginning, right? He knows who Peter is. He knows Peter's heart. He knows Peter's thoughts. He knows Peter's faith. He knows Peter's propensity for putting his foot in his mouth. So maybe Jesus did this as a little bit of an additional sign to help Peter's faith. As with a Jew, Peter was aware of the requirement 
to test the message of a prophet. If somebody is teaching and their teaching is accompanied by these signs and miracles, that validates their message. Um, overall, though, I think that really part of the, the, the bigger part of the reason for this healing was because that's what Jesus was here to do in Capernaum. He had already done it as he toured around the countryside throughout Galilee. He had been to Nazareth already. He had been to the other communities and stuff. Here he's in Capernaum, and I think he just came to heal people because that's what Jesus did. That's what he was here for. Um, if you fast forward to evening, people start being brought to Jesus to, uh, for, for healing. Uh, the sick, the those who had been oppressed by demons and so on, um, I have to imagine, you know, this is kind of my imagination extrapolating from the life of Peter, that when his mother-in-law was healed, it probably didn't stay a secret, right? Any of you ever live in a community with, with a bunch of, um, how to put this delicately, older ladies who like to talk? Right? Everybody knows when the bunions flare up. Everybody knows when the sciatic is acting up. Everybody knows that you get a whole bunch of, of little old ladies around a table and it's universal every time. And, and I'm not picking on little old ladies because us old guys do it too. Right? At least we do it at work. But, but every time I've been anywhere where there's a bunch of little old ladies, it sounds like an organ recital. Because this is broken, that hurts, and the other thing's not working right. So I would imagine that she probably went out and told people, look, this teacher that Peter's been following showed up at the house. He touched my hand, my fever left. That's going to cause people to want to come. People who just knew Jesus was in town wanted to come because that's what Jesus did was he healed people. Jesus casts out the spirits with a word. He heals all that were sick. And Matthew makes a really, 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 really critical statement here. Matthew is one of the one of the disciples. Matthew was a Jew. And he was a tax collector. As a tax collector, he was not a real popular person. But as a Jew, Matthew makes a lot of references to the Old Testament prophecies about who Jesus is. And here he says that the prophet Isaiah spoke what Jesus was fulfilling. One of those uh, messianic prophecies that Isaiah spoke. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Another, uh, another translation, if you actually look at the Greek words there for, for illnesses and diseases, if you look at those, those Greek words, it's grief and sorrow. In Israel, in ancient Israel, and I wish this weren't the case today, but even in the United States, especially in the church, sickness and demonic activity are indications of some sin in the life of the person who's suffering. If you think about the man who was born blind, you remember what the, the, the disciples asked as they're walking along and they see this blind man on the side of the road and the disciples turn to Jesus and they say, whose sin was it? Was it his or was it his parents? That caused him to be born blind. Well, neither one. He was born blind to show the glory of God. But there's this idea here that, that sin is what leads to sickness. I'm not saying that's not the case sometimes. 
There are times that we are sinful and there is a physical correlation of consequence. Right? STDs are a very good example. Okay? Infidelity, you catch something, you carry it along, you transmit it. It's, it's just... But that's not the pattern of Scripture. People get sick without being directly caused by their sin. Jesus came to carry our sin and our sorrow, our grief, our sickness, our illnesses, our diseases, our punishment on the cross so that we wouldn't face God's justice. So that we wouldn't face God's wrath and wind up in hell. This activity here, this this healing that Jesus is performing is not a blank check promise for all believers that Jesus is going to heal everything. Isaiah wasn't meaning that when he said it. Isaiah, remember in prophecy, Isaiah was speaking of something that was going to happen in the then and there, and then something in the distant future at some point. And and he's talking about Jesus' messianic activity here. This is a sign for the people that Jesus is who he says he is. This is a pretty effective sign. Uh, We don't know how long. Like I said, Matthew didn't record this chronologically, but if we move on to verse 18, we are told that a crowd gathered, and Jesus commanded them to go over to the other side. What in the world are we talking about going over to the other side? Right? We're on the Sea of Galilee. Go over to the other side. He commanded the disciples, get one of your boats. We're going over to the other side of the sea. Now, whether that was actually a straight line across from one side to the other, or if it was across the bay or something like that, we don't know. It might seem that Jesus was trying to get away from the crowd. I don't think that was the case. Because if he was trying to get away from the crowd, we would have seen it back in verse 17. Instead of him healing everybody, he would have tried to disappear. But that's not what he did. I think in this particular case, it was probably to avoid the attention of the Roman government in Capernaum. It was still a Roman province. They still had a Roman governor. The Romans had this this testy little thing. You can practice your religion all you want. The Romans did not force people to convert to their religion. In fact, they didn't care what religion you were. I just read a thing the other day. Not a lot of people know this. When the Romans would conquer another city with, with different gods, they would actually pray to the gods of that city. In the ancient world, that's how the, the deities worked. See, if you were, if you were in Palestine, or, or uh, Philistia rather, if you were in Philistia, there on the sea in Palestine, your god was Dagon, the god of the sea. And it, he controlled that area, but only that area. And if you went elsewhere to where the Canaanites were, which was a different area, their god was Molech. And then there were those who worshipped Baal and those who worshipped Asherah and, and so on. When the Romans would come into an area to conquer, they would actually pray to whatever the deity was in that area. That that deity would abandon his people so that they would be victorious. And then if they were victorious, 
they would make a statue in honor of that deity and place him in high, or her in high regard. In some cases, even incorporating them into the Roman pantheon. The Romans didn't make people quit worshiping. You can worship your God. He's not one of ours. That's fine. But here's the deal. The Romans were keenly aware of the power of large crowds. Because <laughs> when you get a bunch of people together, especially in a whipped up religious furor, what happens is you wind up with a riot. You wind up with a rebellion. So the Romans would quickly come in to break up religious gatherings. So Jesus may have been trying to prevent that. So he, he commands his disciples, let's go over to the other side. If they go over to the other side of the sea, it's not a second gathering in Capernaum. It's someplace else. The people can follow. We'll make sure they know where the boat's going. Which lends me to believe it may have just been across a small part of the water to a different town that he was aiming, not a straight line across the Sea of Galilee. As they're getting into the boat, Matthew tells us that a scribe came up to talk to Jesus. Now, the role of the scribe in ancient Israel, in, in the time of Jesus, the role of the scribe was to copy Scripture. That was their job. That's all they did. Well, if you copy things long enough, you learn what they say. And the scribes were absolute experts in the text of the Torah. They could tell you chapter and verse, where to find anything you wanted to find. We don't know anything about this scribe. He may have been on the hillside listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. He may have been in the crowd that brought sick people to Jesus at Peter's house. We don't know anything at all about him. Except he comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus gives him an answer that just doesn't make a lot of human sense. Because you would think that Jesus would be eager to have people willing to follow him. Right? Come on, get in the boat. Let's go. But there were a lot of people who followed Jesus for the wrong reason. There were people who thought that he was the prophet. You remember in, uh, later on, towards the end, just before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And their response is, some say that you are the prophet. Right? So maybe, maybe Elijah came back. That you are the forerunner, you're the one who's announcing the way of the Messiah. There's even those who say that you're John the Baptist. There are people who are following Jesus for the wrong reason. They're following him because they think he is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. There are those who think that he was the Messiah, but that he's got a sword behind his back and he's ready to kick the Romans out. And then there were those who followed Jesus just because he was famous. Because you know what happens when you hang around people that are famous, right? Some of that fame and fortune is going to rub off on me. So Jesus doesn't go out of his way to, to collect followers outside of calling the disciples, the, the twelve, 
And then at one point, we know that, that, that there's this group of the 70 that go out that he sends. But outside of calling these small groups of disciples, Jesus gives an answer right here that seems to put up a roadblock. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's not crying out for sympathy. He's telling this guy that basically, if you follow me, you're going to leave everything behind. It's going to leave you destitute. It's going to leave you broke. If you decide to take the step to follow me, you're going to give everything else up. Even the animals of the wild have a home, but Jesus doesn't. There's another thing to note before we move on to the next verse. is That's the title that Jesus referred to himself by. Take a look there in uh, verse 20. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That is the most common name that Jesus calls himself in the Gospels. That's the most common way for him to refer to himself. A lot of people understand this statement, and when you read it, it makes sense, Son of Man, that this is talking about Jesus' humanity. And there's a degree to which that may be the case. But there's a more important meaning behind this title that you can find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's having this vision of the Ancient of Days, which is God, seated on his throne and all the things that are going on at the end of time. And in verse 13 he says that he saw one coming like a son of man, who is presented to the Ancient of Days. And he receives a scroll, and he receives a kingdom, and he receives power and authority and dominion and glory. Well, when Daniel uses that phrase, one who appears like a son of man, he is making it clear that this is not an angelic being, but one who appears to be human. Again, kind of touching on Jesus' humanity. And when he comes before God seated on his throne, he's presented with dominion and power and glory. So by Jesus using this title to identify himself, he is declaring himself to be Messiah. See, there's a lot of people who argue with Christians, and well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Because that makes a pretty clear claim. Because who is it that God is going to give dominion and power and glory to? Right, because the only one who deserves glory is God, right? He's not going to give it to a man. And yet Jesus receives glory from the Father. That's a claim to deity. So he was declaring himself to be Messiah, but not the Messiah that the people were looking for. The one who would come with a sword, setting up his kingdom and his authority and and setting up his power. This is why so many people missed his coming. Who would expect that the the guy who identifies himself as one coming like a son of man, who receives power and authority and glory and honor from God seated on his throne, who would expect him 
to show up as a preacher from a poor family who has nothing and who spends his life teaching and healing people. That doesn't fit. The pictures don't line up. They expected somebody who had wealth and power, not humility and meekness. Matthew records in verse 21, Another of the disciples came up and said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus gives a very harsh answer. Now, it could be that the father had recently passed. Maybe he was terminally ill. At any rate, this disciple is applying the fifth commandment. Anybody know what the fifth commandment is? Honor your father and your mother. So your days may be long. That is the one commandment with a promise. Honor your parents or they're going to kill you. (laughs) This disciple was applying the fifth commandment. Because a proper Jewish burial was critical to showing honor to your parents. So the request was not a bad request. And Jesus gives that Let the dead bury their own dead. That's harsh. Jesus just got, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And here he tells his disciple, don't worry about burying your dad. What? That doesn't make any sense. Later on, Jesus is going to say, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. Wait a minute. There's a problem with this picture. The problem is with our understanding. There are a couple of different interpretive options that we have with this statement that Jesus made. Where he said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Number one, there was a Jewish burial custom. Uh, Well, let me ask this question. How many of you have heard of an ossuary before? Right? Anybody know what an ossuary is? It's a box with bones in it. So the Jewish burial custom, they didn't have undertakers and embalmers and, and, and formaldehyde and, and preservatives like we use now. When they buried their dead, they would wrap them in cloth, and in between the layers of cloth, they would put spices and ointments and lotions and stuff, not to preserve the body, but to mask the stink. All right, you remember when Lazarus died and Jesus showed up three days later because that was the Jewish understanding of when the soul actually left the body was after three days? You didn't know that, did you? Yeah. They understood that the soul left the body after three days. So when Jesus showed up after three days, there was no chance that it was just an illness. Lazarus was dead. So when he comes up to the tomb and he commands the tomb to be opened, Lazarus's sister standing there and says, Jesus, don't. He stinks. Three days of decay in the Galilean desert. Okay? I smelled roadkill before in July. It's not good. I can't imagine it confined in a cave where the tomb was. So, 
the tradition in, in Israel was to bury the body and let it decay and let that process happen for a period of about one year. After which point, what's left? Bones. Just bones. All the soft tissue is gone. So then they would open the tomb, they would take the bones, and they would put them in an ossuary, and then they would put the ossuary in basically a mausoleum-type situation, like we see down here in the south, because if you bury caskets underground and we have a hurricane, it's like a toaster. The, the caskets pop back up. That's why they use mausoleums down here. So they would put the ossuary away. So it's possible that when he was saying, let me bury my father, he was actually asking to postpone his following Jesus for a period of at least a year. In other words, Jesus, I want to follow you, but not right now. That's not the way to approach the Christian life. It's also possible that Jesus was talking about the spiritually dead condition of sinners, leaving the spiritually dead to bury their own. In other words, what do you have to do with somebody who is unsaved? I don't think that was the case. There's a third possibility that Jesus was using a phrase that was common in those days that basically meant that one statement had nothing to do with the other. Burying your father has nothing to do with following after me. And then, of course, the fourth and the the most obvious and hardest possibility is that Jesus meant exactly what he said. You're either going to follow me or you're not. Let the dead bury their own. No matter which one of those four interpretive choices that we have there, it's obvious that what Jesus is seeking is a wholehearted commitment from his followers. We can't we can't tie ourselves to the things of the past if we're going to walk ahead with Christ. Paul says that we're supposed to put aside the sin that so easily besets us, right? The the picture there is of luggage. You ever trudge through an airport with a heavy suitcase? Right? It's it's miserable. The first time I deployed, I flew from Newark, New Jersey to Pittsburgh, from Pittsburgh to Frankfurt, Germany. And it was a deployment, so I didn't get to carry my nice Samsonite suitcase with roller wheels. No, I had a a green A bag that weighed about 750 pounds because it was full of chem warfare gear. And then I had my duffel bag that had all my uniforms and combat boots and everything because I had to fly in civilian clothes. You don't want to paint a big target on your back when you're flying overseas. And then I had one small carry on duffel bag that had my other personal stuff in it that I got to do. Woohoo! One little duffel bag of personal stuff and a whole bunch of professional gear. So as I'm trying to get through the airport hauling these things, I was moving just about as slow as it is possible to move and still be called moving. 
Because I couldn't go but about three feet before my hand was going to explode from carrying that A bag. And on my back, I'm bent like this because my, my C bag, my duffel bag on the back, weighed about 400 pounds. So I'm, I'm walking. It's a big bag, kind of looks like a garbage can. <laughs> yeah, it had lots of stuff in it. So I'm walking like this through the airport. And then somebody pointed out to me those little carts you can rent, right, to put the bag on. That made life a whole lot easier. <laughs> hey, I like these. But that idea of dragging the weight behind us, you know, whether Jesus was talking about somebody being spiritually dead or he was talking about that, that process of burying the bones a year later or whether he was, whatever it is, Jesus is saying, when you make the commitment to follow Christ, there's luggage that you leave. There's stuff that you just, you let it go. And you move forward with where Jesus is telling you to go. And that luggage, that luggage might be, it might be toxic relationships with people. It might be sin that is holding you down. It might be a job. It might be, who knows? Jesus is looking for wholehearted commitment to follow him. Not half-hearted, not not like Lot's wife, when she left the city before it was destroyed, as they're running away, instead of looking towards her salvation, what did she do? She turned and looked back at what she was going to lose. And she turned to a pillar of salt. So we need to not look back. Jesus wants wholehearted commitment from us. I know it's early, but I have this thought that I want to leave us with, and, and we're going to be done this morning. When we follow Jesus in our lives, in your life, in my life, today. This is not some abstract, esoteric, academic-only question. But if you are a professing believer and you are following Christ, or you claim to follow Christ, are you leaving the dead to bury their own? Are you putting aside that old suitcase full of bricks that is slowing you down in the race that you've been called to run? What is it in your past that you have not and cannot let go of because you're afraid of losing it? Whether that's good or bad or ugly, Jesus requires wholehearted commitment from his followers. That's what this passage is about. Is to put behind us the stuff that slows us down and move forward to where he's called us.